This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. Tim Shu, CEO and founder of Vet CBD. Dr. Shu, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's nice to have another West Coaster out on the podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about cannabinoids and pets. Yeah, you see how I quickly tried to get past that. But yes, Dr. Shu is on the West Coast, so we'll put another one in the West Coast. So Dr. Shu, for our listeners that are unfamiliar with you, can you give a little bit about a brief background about you and how you got into the cannabis space? Yeah, sure. So I'm a veterinarian, practice in general emergency critical care medicine. And, you know, for me, the the way that I've approached cannabis and cannabinoid therapeutics is that if there is value in cannabis, then we really owe it to our patients or our clients to be able to really find out what that value is, right? Even if there is no value, then we've got to be able to say, okay, you know, we've done our due diligence, we've looked at it, and we either found that there is value or there isn't value. But turns out there is massive value in cannabinoid therapeutics and understanding the endocannabinoid system. Now, one of the big problems is that we're, we're not educating not only the clients that benefit the most from it, but we're not educating our healthcare professionals about it. And so we're really doing a uh, huge disservice to the medical community and its clients and patients. And so for me, that's uh, how I got into the cannabis industry in 2015. So take us through Vet CBD, the origin of that, how that came about, and kind of what led you to wanting to dive into this path. Yeah, so you know, I had heard about how cannabis could be beneficial for humans. And for me, it, it was always the question of, okay, if cannabis can be beneficial for humans, are we able to make it beneficial for animals as well, right? Because most people, when they think about cannabis, they think about the intoxicating aspects of it, right? They think about the THC. They think about people getting high and things like that. But what they, at least back then, you know, what people didn't realize was that cannabis is not just THC. Cannabis is CBD as well. You know, it's also CBC, CBG, et cetera, et cetera. But there are ways that we can utilize it to be able to make it so that it's non-intoxicating for animals. So it doesn't get them high, but there is still able to get the medical benefits from it. I think that's really well said. And I want to kind of dive into more of those specifics. So some of the products you have, you listed on your website, you talk about the ratios and the 10 to ones. Now, my question to you before we kind of dive into some of the specifics are, are pet CBD products similar in their formulations as the human CBD products? They're different in the in the formulation. You know, first is the ingredients, right? There are ingredients out there that are perfectly fine for people to ingest, but can actually be toxic to animals. And so the one that everyone knows is chocolate, right? You, you never give your dogs chocolate. Um, but other things like raisins, for example, raisins are grapes. People don't realize that you're not supposed to give your dogs raisins or grapes, right? Because it could cause kidney damage. But then there's also another one called xylitol, which is a sweetener that's actually found in tons of different human products. Pretty much uh, most of the chewing gums out there that you'll find have uh, xylitol in it, but uh, even things like um, toothpaste can have xylitol in it. And xylitol can actually be very toxic for dogs, and you never want them to get into anything that contains xylitol. So, you know, first and foremost is the ingredients and making sure that the ingredients are safe for the animals. But also dosing matters, right? You know, a 160-pound person is, is going to probably take a different dose than a 10-pound dog. 
So that's the other big thing that can be very different when it comes to humans and animals. And then also, you know, the, the formulation in terms of how you're utilizing THC, for example, can also be different. Um, what's important to understand is that THC can actually be effectively utilized in animals, but they can be more sensitive to it. And so it needs to be dosed and formulated properly. Is the dosing based on the weight of the animal in the, in the most regards, or is there other factors outside of the weight to incorporate in like three? Dosing based on weight is one thing to consider. Now, whether there are breed differences, I don't think anyone really knows that quite yet. There certainly could be. You know, we know that in terms of veterinary medicine, there are specific breeds that may have uh, different metabolic issues that are, are attached to that specific breed. Now, what we do see is that there are a lot of individual variations in terms of metabolism and the endocannabinoid system, and we call this pharmacokinetics. And so what that means is you can have two dogs that are the same, same weight, you know, let's say they're 50 pounds and you give them the exact same amount of CBD. Let's say you give them 10 milligrams of CBD and one absorbs it a lot more than the other one does. And another one may metabolize it a lot more quickly than another one does. This is just individual pharmacokinetics. And that's, what's really fascinating is that we do see variations in that. And so you know, the whole thing about how to properly administrate for animals is based off of specific individuals, just like it is for humans, right? So the general mantra of go low, start slow by starting at a lower amount and then gradually increasing it to the optimal effect applies to animals as well. Kellen, dive in there. What's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are in relation to why I would be wanting to administer a cannabinoid to my, my pet, right? I mean, I have a dog and like the weight factor, I've, I've explored CBD products in the past as well for one of my, my parents actually had an elder, an older dog that was struggling with like joint pain, which I thought might kind of uh, increase its enjoyment of life. And the, the weight thing was one item that the, the brand I was looking at, they kind of divided it into like, okay, here's a dosage for dogs that are zero to 30 pounds, 30 to 60, 60 and up kind of a situation, right? And my mind just kept going back to why, what, where are those dosages tied to from a pharmacokinetic standpoint? I mean, is this something, uh, Dr. Shu, that we're basing off of like previous studies? Can you kind of elaborate on where some of those, the dosage came, came from? Not only because it's the mass of the animal, right? How much it weighs, but the amount of CBD that you're administering. Do, do we know where those kind of uh, dosage came from? Is it um, some studies or, or is it just kind of a lower, lower concentrations and work from there? Could you kind of walk us through how that came to be? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting question. So for us, it's, um, it, it's what we experimented with and, and found to be a good uh, starting point. So we have starting point recommendations and then how to increase it from there. Now, what's interesting is that some of the published studies out there, some of the clinical trials out there actually use much, much higher uh, amounts than what we use. Now, there was another interesting study that came out of Colorado State University that was looking at using CBD in arthritic dogs. They did find that it was beneficial for these dogs, but the interesting thing that they found was that the dose at which was which it was effective was all over the place. So I think um, you had uh, as, as little as something like 0.3 milligram per kilogram going up all the way to like 4.1 milligram per kilogram. So like over a 10 times difference. 
right? And so that's something that's really interesting and that just goes to show you that it, it matters, um, the, the individual matters. Another thing that's really interesting, especially on the hemp side of things, is that there is no regulation in regards to the testing the content of cannabinoids in a product. So, you know, there's time and time, there's been multiple studies out there that have looked and said that, um, you know, based off of, you know, testing, you know, 30 or 50 over-the-counter uh, hemp CBD products, a, a number of them don't actually sit within that 90 to 110% of the label claim. So, you know, for example, if, some, if something says it has 100 milligrams of CBD in it, in order to be accurate, it has to fall within 90 to 110%. So 90 to 110 milligrams of CBD. But time and time again, multiple studies have shown that a lot of products out there don't actually contain that 90 to 110% uh, range. And some of them actually don't contain any CBD. So that's the problem is, you know, people are, are using these uh, products sometimes and finding out that, you know, they're not seeing any benefits. But uh, the issue could be that they're actually not getting what they're paying for. So what would you suggest to someone that comes to you and says, hey, I bought this product. It didn't work for my dog. Would you recommend trying different products? Would you recommend staying with the same product three times? Because the, the point you brought up is, is a really important one. One that we've heard time and time again is that people have this issue with their dog. They're looking for something to help their dog and then they have this different experience. And it could be off-putting for them where they, they take a different approach. They go with a different style product and, and it could be the wrong choice just based on what you said. So what would you suggest to them? Well, first, what I would say is loop your veterinarian in, right? You know, I understand that years ago, I've always told people this, right? Talk to your veterinarian first and foremost. Make sure they're in that involved in that conversation. And, you know, for a long time, um, you know, people come back to me and say, I've tried talking to my veterinarian. Uh, they refuse to talk to me about it or, or they don't know how to answer my questions. They don't, they're not educated about it. But slowly over time, we've seen that change. And that's, that's awesome, right? That's progress. Um, and we are starting to see more and more veterinarians feel comfortable being involved in that conversation. So first and foremost, talk to your veterinarian about it, right? Because you want to make sure that whatever you're, you're trying to address um, can be adequately addressed by cannabinoid therapeutics. And we are seeing more veterinarians be educated about it. We, we do do a lot of presentations for veterinarians about, you know, the, the things that cannabis can be utilized for and how to look for quality and how to, to guide your clients uh, through this process to make sure that they're getting quality products. Um, but the other thing is that any, any product that they purchase should have a COA tied to that specific product. And that COA should be available on the website. Uh, or if you reach out to the company, they should be able to, to provide that for you. And a COA is a certificate of analysis. Um, you know, if you really want to get down to it, you can also verify with the lab that ran that COA that the, that COA is accurate. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that sometimes we see products are made with CBD isolate. And thus far, the evidence shows that the, the entourage effect, that theory of synergism between multiple components of the cannabis plant does appear to hold true. We do have more evidence in favor of the entourage effect than against it. And so if a product is made, being made with CBD isolate, that patient or that client may actually do better with something that's full spectrum. Just like thinking through that, I mean, that's that's a great find. And I think that's so important. But then I wonder, Dr. Shu, that puts so much emphasis back on the individual to be educated about the experience, to kind of go through these steps and challenges, which is hard, right? In those moments where you're 
your animal is, is, is suffering and you're looking for an area and, and reaching in these different approaches. So again, to continue on that path, would you suggest that if, if your pet has anxiety or is older as arthritis, can they lean on similar products? Should they have to look for two different products? What do you suggest there? Can you clarify that question a little bit? Sure. So for example, let's say you have an older dog who has arthritis and anxiety. Can the same product be used to serve both purposes? Or would you suggest looking for an individual product allocated for the arthritis one and a different one for the anxiety one? Definitely depends on the individual. Definitely depends on the individual. Because the, the way that we, we see cannabis is uh, that it's an additional tool in the toolbox, right? And it, it's not something that can be used for anything and everything, right? And having been in the dispensary space for, for a while, I've kind of seen some of the early marketing. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of also seen this mentality of uh, plants over pills, but you know, really, it's not it's not plants over pills. It's not pills over plants. It's it's both, right? You have to be able to utilize the right tool for the right situation, and in some cases, uh, traditional pharmaceuticals are going to work better. In other cases, cannabinoid therapeutics may work better, and in other cases, a combination of the two may work best, right? So it just depends on the individual and their situation. I have a question. So I mean, in terms of the the different tools in reference to, to cannabis right now, it's it's kind of CBD and THC are the main um, tools being impl- implemented. My experience with THC in dogs is that when a dog eats cannabis, they kind of have like a little freak out session, right? Like I just remember my uh, one of my really good buddies, uh, dog in college ate a bunch of cannabis and like they found it like under a table shaking, like it was urinating uncontrollably and like those kind of things. So... My question is, some of the, the products out there for dogs include THC. What kind of benefit is THC bringing to a dog? And what's that threshold where they actually have kind of like a, a serious reaction to it? Yeah, actually, a lot of the products out there are full spectrum. And yeah. any full spectrum product does have a certain amount of THC in it. What's important to understand is that THC, the effects of THC are, are dose dependent, right? Which is pretty much the case with everything else. And what we see a lot of times with cannabinoids is that they have biphasic properties, right? So what that means is that you, at, at lower ends, you get a different effect than you may at higher ends, for example. And one of the things that's really interesting about THC is that at lower doses, it's anxiolytic, meaning that it can actually help with anxiety. At higher doses, it can be anxiogenic, meaning that it can generate or create anxiety. Um, This has to do with uh, how it works on the different receptors in the different parts of the brain. But it's the same thing with people, right? If, If a person took two and a half milligrams of THC, they may be okay. They may they be, be calm and relaxed, right? Now, if they took 250 milligrams of THC, <laughs> it's going to be a different story. Yeah. It is. So, <laughs> you, you know, the, it's a very similar situation that applies here, right? It, it's really the dose that makes a difference. And what people don't realize is that this can be applied to so many other things in life, right? Taking a daily vitamin, that's great, right? Taking a bottle of daily vitamins every day, that's probably a very, very bad idea, right? And so it's the same thing with, for example, uh, like salt, right? You need salt. It's an important part of your, your diet. 
uh, and nutrient requirements. Um, but you, if you take in too much salt, that's unhealthy for you, right? That's not good for you. Same thing with oxygen. You need oxygen to live and survive, but you can't breathe 100% pure oxygen. Eventually, you get oxygen toxicity from that. So, you know, it, it applies to just about everything in life is finding the right amount. So we found out through experience that sometimes when you take too much THC, you can have CBD to kind of have that kill switch and that off-putting experience and kind of bring you back down. Does that work similarly in animals where hypothetically, if a dog consumed too much THC, which I do have experience with, and it was awful, you can give the dog CBD in order to kind of help mellow it out. Is that possible? It's an interesting question. And I think that that's, it's definitely one that's up for debate. Um, there's evidence that kind of points in either direction. You know, some say that, uh, you know, the CBD has to be taken um, either before or with uh, the THC. But whether or not THC can lessen some of the intoxicating side effects of THC, I think that remains to, to be seen. Um, I, I don't have uh, any, any good evidence to say one way or the other right now. So continuing on, just amassing for personal experience, hypothetically, if the dog got into, let's say, the leftover bowl, would that be enough THC to possibly cause it one of those higher effects if it's a smaller weight dog? Or does it, it need to be consumed in a different way outside of, let's say, grounded flour? So, well, the, the grounded flour, that depends, you know, grounded, you know, in general flour, you get more of the, the acids. Um, so for example, like THCA and THCA is not intoxicating. Now, if it's decarboxylated from THCA into THC, it's a different story. Um, but it just depends, you know, so, some, uh, the, the thing is that when people are, are making edibles, they, they tend to, to put a fairly large amount of THC in there. And so, you know, and if, if there's ever a, a cause for concern, easiest thing or the safest thing and the best thing to do would to take your dog to your veterinarian, right? Because the other thing to consider is what other ingredients could they have ingested? So a lot of times you may have, uh, you know, when people are making edibles or mixing a thing with like, you know, chocolate and, and butter and things like that, that may cause um, GI upset or, or chocolate toxicity in those dogs. So, you know, if, if there's ever a cause for concern from ingestion like that, the best thing is to bring your dog to your veterinarian. Is there any recent research that you've discovered or read about that you're excited for the pet space? Any minor cannabinoids that you're really excited about to kind of integrate into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's um, that has a lot of potential. You know, right now, the market is really pushing CBG, CBN, and CBC. But the reality, what's interesting is that the research on those molecules is, um, is still very early stages. You know, we have preclinical research that's out there. So, you know, looking at CBG, CBC, and its effect on maybe mice and rats and, you know, cells that are sitting in test tubes or Petri dishes, but we don't really have any good clinical trials that are looking at those cannabinoids. And I think that there's potential there in those cannabinoids, exactly what we're not quite sure of. Um, we do have some internal research that we've done. And so there are some, uh, some formulations that we've come up that, um, actually do seem to be more beneficial in certain cases than just utilizing full-spectrum CBD. So we're pretty excited about that. I have a question. Is all mammalian endocannabinoid systems almost identical? 
from like a receptor and metabolic perspective. I guess for an easier way to phrase it, is the CB1 receptor and CB2 receptor in dogs the same CB1 and CB2 receptor that would be in humans from like a, a structure standpoint? As well as, and then my, my follow-up question would be, is it same from like dogs to cats? How much research has been done on understanding the endocannabinoid system in species outside of humans? Yeah, that's a great question. And in terms of the endocannabinoid system, speaking of it from an evolutionary perspective, it's an ancient system, right? It's been around mm-hmm. for millions and millions of years, and that's why we have it in all vertebrae animals. So whether it's a, you know mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, they all have an endocannabinoid system. And in fact, some invertebrate animals have endocannabinoid systems as well. So we know from an evolutionary standpoint that this system has been around for a very, very long time. The other thing that we know is that even though it's similar in terms of its function um, in animals, right, it's, its main overarching goal is homeostasis, and it plays that role in a number of things, mood, appetite, sleep, metabolism, inflammation, reproduction. But we do know that there are species differences, differences right? It's not going to be the same across species. Um, one of the, the most um, remarkable things that everybody uh, you know, seems to have heard about is that dogs have a higher concentration of CB1 receptors in a portion of their brain called the cerebellum um, compared to other species that have been studied. Now, the, going back to your CB1 and CB2 receptor question, um, we do know that the CB1, CB2 receptors across species are similar, but they're not exactly the same. There are some slight differences between the CB1, CB2 receptor in a, in a dog, in a human, in a mouse, and a rat. You said the dogs have a bigger CB1 receptor? More higher concentration. Higher concentrations. Higher concentration in their cerebellum of so, CB1 receptors. So what, what would that mean? So more sensitive? Would more they be more sensitive to, to, to the molecules that bind with their CD1 receptor? Yeah, exactly. So they can be more sensitive to molecules that bind with the CB1 receptor. And so THC is a partial agonist of the CB1 receptors. And so that means that they are more sensitive to THC. That's cool. So let's, let's go through the product formulation. Do you start it historically? Have you started with an idea from a conception saying we'd want to go with a ratio? Or are you starting more with research and working through? Take us through the process from idea to end product. Yeah, it's really interesting because in terms of the, the research, there, there's a lot of preclinical research out there that's been done, right? So, you know, uh, you'll, you'll find studies that say, uh, you know, this or that cannabinoid was able to do this in mice or rats, um, or, or it had this effect on cells in a Petri dish. And so that preclinical research is, is helpful because it provides a hypothesis, um, but then you, you have to come up with the formulation to be able to test that hypothesis on a patient group that hasn't uh, had clinical trials on it, uh, run on it before. Um, and so it, it's a mix of taking the research that has been done and, and experimenting and trying different formulations in a real world environment and seeing what works best. So that's that's the simplest way for me to put it. What's the time frame for something like that? Depends. I mean, you can have some things, um, you know, and I know that certainly some, in some cases uh, we were like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do this over the course of six months and it, it ends up being 12 months and uh, it, it's ongoing. Um, I think other stuff. Yeah. I mean, th- there's other projects that we've had that um, it, it's it's run longer uh, than, than what we hope for. And you'd be surprised, you know, when it comes to um, 
pharmaceuticals, um, you know, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, going from uh, the beginning to the end phase uh, until the, the, uh, the patient is actually able to benefit from pharmaceutical, that could take decades. Is uh, the pharmaceutical development in dogs the same as pharmaceutical development timelines in, in humans? Is it, how does that, how do those processes work together? Um, do they I work mean, together? Because like there is, there's narcotics that are approved, like painkillers, right? Those are approved in humans and the same molecules approved in, in animals as well. Is there some, do, do they, they overlap like nice? that? Yeah, so you know there there is That's some common. overlap in terms of uh, you know animal and human pharmaceuticals. You know there there are some pharmaceuticals that humans use that um, are used in, in in the veterinary world as well, and some that are not. Uh, just because there there are some that are safe for people, but that are toxic for animals. So there are also veterinary drugs that are specifically developed for animals. Okay. I was going to say, do all trials start with mice as the, the equal starting ground, or is that not correct? A lot of them do. You know, a lot of times in humans, they, they try to use models that, that reflect human systems. Um, so, you know, it's not always in mice. You know, sometimes they may use pigs, for example. So on your website, I read about your corporate social responsibility policy. For every bottle purchased from our site, we donate a bottle to a rescue organization so we can help the helpers. Why is that so important for your organization to continue the messaging? Well, for me, my perspective has always been that business should be utilized as a vehicle for philanthropy, right? And so as, as a business, we always have to be looking at how can we give back? How can we improve the world? How can we leave it a better place than we found it? And there's a lot of organizations out there that are, are trying to improve the world, and they may not have the funds or resources to, to be able to do everything that they can. And so one of our goals is to be able to assist them however we can to be able to help them achieve their goals. And so one of the the ways that we do so is by doing that one for one program. But you know, we also have other things like uh, we have a scholarship um, that goes towards uh, veterinary students and veterinary nursing students, because, you know, students are, are heavily burdened by uh, debts and loans these days. And so we want to help ease that burden for them. That's awesome. It sounds like you guys are also doing research. How do you balance like conducting meaningful research while trying to use that research to help kind of support the business? Yeah, so you know, we we take a look at what what has the most evidence and what has the most potential to be able to to benefit these animals out there, and it, it's also based off of what's available on the market, right? You know, it wasn't always the case that these different cannabinoids were available, and there there are actually some specific uh, components of the cannabis plant that I'm very interested in, but right now no one's really extracting them. So it also depends on what's available in the market. So right now, you know, a lot of extractors are, you know, they've got a lot of CBG, a lot of CBN, a lot of CBC. And it wasn't always that way. But in the future, we'll, we'll start to see other cannabinoids be more available for research. You know, some, some people are doing CBT. Some people are, are doing the acids like uh, CBDA, CBGA. Um, and those are all very interesting. So I'm excited. Which areas you, you said before? there were certain areas that you were most excited about. Is there a certain cannabinoid in particular or a certain group of cannabinoids that you're most excited about? Um, well, I mean, you know, everybody's heard of CBD and everybody loves CBD and rightly so. In terms of other cannabinoids that I'm super excited about, I mean, I, I would actually have to kind of kind of flip that question. I'm, I'm more excited about 
our understanding of the endocannabinoid system, right? Because the, the endocannabinoid system is something that has been overlooked for decades and unfortunately continues to, to get second billing or, you know, third billing, fourth billing. And I say that because this is something that is present in all vertebrae animals it is deeply intertwined with all other physiological systems. It's responsible for homeostasis in, in so many different um, aspects of our lives, yet it's currently not being taught in most professional medical schools, veterinary schools, or nursing schools. You know, I ask um, recent graduates that are doctors, that are nurses, I ask them, you know, what did you guys learn about the endocannabinoid system in school? More oftentimes than not, the answer is nothing. And, and these are some of the doctors that are, that are going to some of the best medical schools in the country. And so you think about that and you think about how important the endocannabinoid system is. And you think about the fact that they're not teaching it in some of the best schools in the world. And that makes you wonder about the, the potential of this system and, and how much we'll learn about it in the next five to 10 years and the impact that will have on our health and well-being. Are they surprised when you ask them that how much they've learned and they say nothing? Are they are they kind of like taken back by there could be an entire system they've never learned about? Take us through that kind of conversation. It's an interesting conversation because it's not something that they've ever heard about. And so for for a lot of them, it's just like, oh, I've never heard about it. And, and in, in some cases, it's it's almost surprising because there's a lack of interest because because if they never heard about it, they don't they don't understand the the impact or the importance of it. Right. Right. But but for for people that have been studying the endocannabinoid system, that mentality is is shocking um, because we know about how important the endocannabinoid system is. But to hear that it's not being taught in some of the best schools in the country, which are some of the best schools in the world, we'll look back on it five to 10 years from now and and we'll we'll think, wow, uh, can you believe that there was a time where schools weren't teaching about the endocannabinoid system. What do you think is going to be the catalyst that actually forces these schools to to adopt this kind of discipline or topic, if you will? It's a great question. And I think it's twofold. One, what we've seen over the years is the clients or the patients actually going to their doctors and saying, hey, I've been using CBD, I've been using cannabis, and this is the thing that has worked well for me. And this is what we've seen in doctors. And they people come back to them and say, this is what's worked for me. CBD has been working for me. Cannabis has been working for me. And then they have to ask, okay, well, why is that the case? You know, what, what is it about cannabinoid therapeutics that's actually working? I, as a medical professional, have an obligation to look into this, to understand what this is. And if it's beneficial for my patients, then I have a moral and ethical obligation to understand why. And if I can assist them and improving their health and wellness through cannabinoid therapeutics, through the understanding of the endocannabinoid system, then I need to do so, right? So that's one avenue. The other avenue comes from, let's say, a a kind of a top-down perspective. We know that pharmaceutical companies are developing drugs that specifically target the endocannabinoid system. And, you know, right now we have Epidiolex, which is CBD um, that has been FDA approved. Um, Now, now doctors are are forced to understand this, right? Well, this is an FDA approved drug. So, so why has this FDA approved drug been approved for certain forms of seizures? And in the future, we'll see more of that, right? Just an example is um, there's pharmaceutical companies out there that are are targeting 
um, specific enzymes that are involved with the endocannabinoid system, right? So one of them is an endocannabinoid reuptake inhibitor. And so what this drug does is it prevents the endocannabinoids from um, being uh, taken into cells and broken down. So what it does is increases your endocannabinoid tone. So you're circulating levels of anandamide and 2-AG, and, and this can have different effects. And so when these drugs get FDA approved from the pharmaceutical companies, you know, we all know the pharmaceutical company does a very, very good job of educating doctors, right? I mean, they, <laughs> they, do. they, they have their ear. That's the reality of it. it is. Um, and, and so when, when pharmaceutical companies get these uh, drugs FDA approved that specifically target the endocannabinoid system, um, doctors will absolutely be hearing about it. Do you think federal legalization would also probably facilitate that from an educational standpoint? Or do you think it's going to have to come from like the uh, institutions that kind of run the, the information? Yeah, it's, it's not binary. It, it's a combination of everything, right? So federal legalization will certainly help, but um, you know, now, now that uh, hemp and its extracts are legal, you know, everybody is able to access CBD. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? I think, you know, honestly, one of the biggest misconceptions is um, the demonization of THC, right? Um, and that comes from, you know, almost a century of prohibition uh, that, that THC is something that just gets you high and THC is something that's, um, that just ruins your life which is absolutely not the case. THC does have medicinal benefits. Um, and you know, to, to deny uh, that and to say that it doesn't have any sort of medicinal benefit is intellectually dishonest. So that, that's one thing that I would love to see changed. And uh, you know, I, I hear it a lot from certain communities that uh, tend to demonize THC. Um, and that's unfortunate because there are a lot of benefits uh, that can come from THC. And the, the, so we, we just need to change our attitude about that. That's really well said. If you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? That there's always opportunities in our life to stand on the right side of history. And the way that we want to navigate our lives is to make the choices that our future selves will be proud of. So I encourage everyone to, to have that perspective because really the, the best that we can do in our lives is to leave this world a better place than we found it. You know, all of us are here because of the, the work and efforts of those that have come before us and we reap the benefits from that. The best that we can do is to be able to make this world a better place so that the generations that come after us can live better lives than what we've lived. It's beautiful. All right, prediction time. Dr. Shu, what is the number one takeaway animal lovers should know about cannabinoid therapeutics for their pets? It absolutely has potential benefits, but you know, don't think of it as a, as a one-size-fits-all. Um, and, and don't think of uh, pharmaceuticals as, um, as terrible things. Right. I, what I always encourage people is to, to get away from this trap of binary thinking. You know, people tend to want to silo things in their mind. You know, things are either black or white. Things are either zero or one. And that's because it's, it's easy for us, right? It's, um, it's an evolutionary advantage and ad, uh, adaptation, um, right? You know, when, you know, we were cavemen, things are either safe or not. But, you know, we're past that now. So for everything, there is a time and a place, right? Like I mentioned before, 
Um, sometimes pharmaceuticals are, are going to be much, much better. Sometimes cannabis can be a much better option. Sometimes a mix or combination of the two can be a better option. Um, but do so under the, the guidance of a, a health professional that's trained and able to evaluate this from a scientific and medical perspective. Kellen? Um, change takes time. So I would say that if you're going to treat or take any cannabinoid for uh, a medicinal benefit in your life or to benefit your animal's life, I would say that don't expect it to be kind of like a magic pill and, you know, change takes time. So these kind of medications take a while for change to occur. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think those are those are all really good. And I think there's different products for, for different people, different dogs. And I think it, not everything should be a one size fits all. I, I think both of you said really, really strong points. And I can think back to multiple conversations where people have leaned to us and say, hey, I've tried this product for my dog. He didn't have anything. It didn't show any effects. It doesn't work. Well, it's like, okay, where'd you get the product from? And then kind of circling back and Dr. Shu, like what you said, look into the product, make sure what you're giving your pet is exactly what it says. Consult your your doctor on that. It, it should always be the same thought process. And I think sometimes people, they hear these conceptual ideas and, and they want things to work so bad, but they don't go through the necessary steps to make sure the product they're selecting is the right one. I think sometimes they're too trusting of just seeing a product and hearing about it versus kind of doing the steps, checking the COA, doing some individual research, reaching out to their vet, looking on sites like yours and kind of taking those next steps to make sure that they're, they're selecting the right type of products. So Dr. Shu, before we wrap, where can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more? Yeah, they can check out our websites at vetcbd.com or vetcbdhemp.com. Awesome. We'll link those all up in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.